my fearless forecast, I call it a return to sanity. I believe George Santos resigns. Welcome to Power Politics, the Mishpacha podcast exploring the flashpoints of American and global current affairs and how they impact the Jewish community. I'm Benjamin Rose, Mishpacha's editor-at-large. And I'm Maury Litwack, a two-decade veteran of political campaigns at Capitol Hill. Join us weekly as we delve into these critical topics and more on power politics. In today's program, America's border crisis. Can America have both secure borders and remain true to its heritage as a safe haven? We'll also do a post-mortem on Kevin McCarthy's victorious battle to become House Speaker. We'll speak with Shimmy Stein, a former top aide to the Republican congressional leadership. Does he have any great expectations from the 118th Congress? And, of course, our weekly person of influence and our fearless forecast. Starting with immigration, can America have both secure borders and remain true to its heritage as a safe haven? Why do I raise that question? I know that for us as Jews, most of us are immigrants. We came to America. I know my uh, grandparents came in the late uh, 1890s, the early 1900s, and they were welcomed. Of course, uh, they had it tough, but they not only survived, uh, some of them prospered. And I think that America got an excellent reputation for being a hospitable type of state. Now we're seeing the opposite. We're seeing people uh, swimming over rivers to get across the border. We're seeing people climbing fences. And, and now I understand that a lot of them are illegal immigrants and we can't just have open borders and anyone coming in at any time and doing whatever they want. Uh, there have been criminal elements who've gotten in, uh, criminal gangs who've helped people come in. So there has to be a balance somewhere. Where is it, Maury? What's going on in, in Washington? What are people saying there? This is a topic which I've had some firsthand experience on, which is when I was working in Congress and I worked for Republican leadership in Congress, they were tackling the immigration issue two decades ago. And prior to that, in the 90s, obviously, with the Cuban migration uh, policies and prior to that in the Reagan administration, and we can keep going. So this is a very old issue in Washington. What's different about it now is instead of just dividing between right and left, it's now dividing multiple parts of the Democratic Party, multiple parts of the Republican Party. This is a complicated issue that when I was dealing with it, we had half of the congressional district that I was working for, which was in Utah, half of the congressional district was very upset at us for trying to figure out how to find legal ways for these immigrants to be in the country. Because the reality is, is that you had at the time, it was 15 million. So you, you had to figure out some way. You can't just evict 15 million people. And the second half of the district felt that this was about being compassionate. It's about being uh, exactly what you said, Binyamin, which is in that example, a lot of Mormons, a lot of religious individuals, like members of our community who said, how do you compassionately help these people? How do you bring them in? How do you continue this environment that America has been uh, as a welcoming nation? This is an old issue, but what's different is it's just a lot hotter, as you know. And I think that really flared up these past couple of weeks uh, with Mayor Adams and Mayor Lightfoot and what happened with Governor Polis. The numbers are a lot bigger. The U.S. migrant population has quadrupled since 1970. In 1970, there were less than 12 million migrants. Now there's more than 50 million. Last year alone, 900,000 immigrants became citizens in the first nine months of the fiscal year. Now, if they're already in the country and they qualify for citizenship, that's great. But somehow, don't we have to seal the borders better? Or is that uh, a dream that President Trump had that President Biden has abandoned completely? I think this is just such a game of political hot potato. I mean, again, you see right now the thing that encapsulates this whole discussion is 
DeSantis is suing Biden. Again, DeSantis is suing Biden. And Governor DeSantis is suing President Biden because the DeSantis camp is claiming that the Department of Homeland Security has reduced resources and ignored policy to detain these migrants. They're saying they're not detaining them. They're saying they're not releasing them. And President Biden's camp is claiming, no, this is a decades-old problem. There are issues during the Trump administration. They haven't changed any policies. It's just flaring up right now. And like I mentioned previously, when you have an environment, not just that right and left that's happening, but you have an environment also where two Democratic uh, mayors, one in New York City and one in Chicago, are complaining because a Democratic governor in Colorado is now sending uh, migrants their way as well. This issue is bubbling over like we've never seen before. My sense is that there's no real solution. If you look at the UN World uh, Migration Report, there's a total in the world of 281 million people living in a country other than where they were born. Now, the UN says, okay, that's not so bad. It's only one out of every 30 people in the world. But this is double since 1990 and triple since 1970. So this is a problem that's only going to get bigger and bigger. And uh, as you pointed out, Maury, with uh, the politicking around, my sense is there's really no solution to this, at least uh, not in the short term. I also think that the way these arguments are framed is very important. You know, we've got some great uh, listener feedback on our podcast so far. And, and one of the things the listeners say is just explain to us a little bit more um, how these things are framed. And I think in immigration, a perfect example of this is when you hear 50 million, 15 million, 20 million, you hear words like illegal immigrants and you say, hey, well, that's not fair and that's not right. And we have to figure this out. And you hear about crime and you hear about other things. OK, but when the American public is polled and, for example, there's a Ukrainian crisis and Ukrainian refugees want to come to America, they're fine with it. And Syrians want to come to America, they're fine with it, just like they were fine with it when Cubans under Castro wanted to come to America. And I remember that well, because I lived in Florida for many years. And you know that there was no Florida elected official, right or left, who would oppose that migration policy. They understood why that made so much sense. And after the potato famine in Ireland, after so many millions died, famously, Irish immigrants fled to America. So it just depends on how the argument is discussed and uh, worked on. And really, there has to be uh, a middle ground. And that's just not something that Washington likes to do. This is something that the Congress is going to have to tackle in this term. And now we have uh, a Republican House. We have a Democratic Senate. And speaking of the Republican House, uh, Maury, I want to pat you on the back for not only saying that Kevin McCarthy would prevail, but for doubling down last week in your fearless forecast. Now, I, I also have to pat myself on the back, at least with one hand, because I also said that in the absence of any serious opposition, that McCarthy was pretty much of a shoo-in to get in. But uh, the big question that's circulating in Washington is McCarthy hobbled uh, by this, or is he just going to move on and say, okay, it was a struggle, it was a battle, and uh, now I'm going to uh, just do my job? What do you think? When you look at the history of the speaker elections, there's two components. Number one is the combativeness, which there has historically been maybe backroom deals, or it took a little while to get a speaker set up. That's sort of the component one. And this took him a long time, I think 14, 15 times. I don't know how many times it took. Yeah, 15 votes. 15 votes. And the second thing that happened is more important, which is there's discussions about changing the rules committee. And the rules committee really is something that's governed by the speaker. And there's an idea that he could be called back for election to speaker again. A lot of unprecedented things, Binyamin, which I believe will create an environment where it's harder for him to get stuff done. Now, that being said, Again, like in another one of my fearless forecasts, I talked about the fact that McCarthy has an ability as the Republican voice in D.C. to galvanize his crowd and demonstrate to them why he's the man for the job and power in his hands makes the most sense. So I don't think it's over yet, but uh, just because he won election does not mean that the battle is over uh, by any stretch. 
I happen to like a lot of the changes that they made, even though it was a, a very difficult battle. Now, I don't like the idea of giving one member power to challenge the speaker if he wants to try to unseat him. But I do like the idea of giving members more input and more time to consider legislation. And I just hope that they'll be able to restore some kind of fiscal sanity, especially when it comes to the budget. Uh, there is one uh, number I wanted to mention. You know, America's national debt is now up to $31 trillion. I'm not going to talk about how many dollar bills uh, piled high into the sky that represents, but basically almost $7 trillion of that debt has to be refinanced in 2023. Interest rates have risen a lot in the past year by at least 2 to 3%, and every percentage point increase adds $70 billion per year to debt financing. So I figured out, based on the uh, Congressional Budget Office projection and now with a higher interest rate, the U.S. is going to spend next year close to $500 billion just to pay interest on the national debt. Now, until 1978 and 1979, the entire federal budget wasn't even $500 billion. So America really has to get their financial house in order. And I do hope if something good comes out of this whole battle, that will restore some sort of fiscal sanity to uh, at least uh, the House of Representatives. When listeners hear that number, message discipline is so important in politics. So if the House decides to talk about something like that, or debt, or the interest on that debt, or anything like that, that's going to resonate with a lot of people. Because I think most Americans, for example, are very familiar with the idea that they pay a mortgage, and then there's two parts of it. There's the principal and there's the interest. When those things are talked about, which they were talked about in the 1990s, and Republicans did a great job of having that message discipline, it really resonated with folks. So I do think, obviously, getting the financial house in order is extremely important. I think every American could agree on that. But it's just a question of who sort of takes that mantle and, and leads with it, especially in the post-COVID years uh, where there was such an influx of spending. I'd also like to see former President Clinton weigh in because he is the last Democrat who uh, actually had a not only a balanced budget, but one of the years when he was president, the uh, federal government ran a surplus. So I'd like to see him maybe put his two cents in and uh, try to get the Democrats on board with that as well. D.C. is full of economists and, and others who love talking numbers like this, Binyamin. So we're going to have to get somebody on here who's going to be informing and not putting our listeners to sleep. So we're going to find the right person for this, Binyamin. Right, the right economist, because I, I know that giving numbers on the air sometimes is difficult to absorb, but I just had to throw in a few today. Our guest today is going to uh, give us an idea of what we can expect from the upcoming Congress and uh, how successful they're going to be especially on the Republican side, in getting legislation across and getting it passed. We're thrilled to have on the podcast a longtime friend and uh, a leading expert, really uh, someone who knows the inside baseball of Washington and something we were just talking about, which is uh, these Republican elections, this uh, new Republican majority. We have on the podcast today, Shimmy Stein, who is a founding partner for Westfront Strategies. Prior to that, and everything he does for Westfront, advising clients on tax, financial services, pension, international trade. Prior to that, Shimmy served as senior policy advisor to then House Majority Leader Eric Cantor, that is part of the Republican leadership, and was a primary policy liaison between the Majority Leader's office, the House Republican leadership, Ways and Means, Foreign Affairs, all these other things that we care about. And before he was in House Republican leadership as a senior advisor, he worked for Senator John Ashcroft. He worked for Representative Jim Talent, and he also worked at DOJ as a special assistant to the director of Office of State and Local Domestic Preparedness and Support. So we're thrilled to have you on the podcast, Shimmy. 
Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and it's uh, great to see you again. Yeah. We always like to ask our guests for the 30 second, 45 second elevator pitch. For those who are going to be watching, you're going to see that Shimmy has that ridiculously impressive resume, but he's also wearing a yarmulke. So he's clearly a member of the community as well. So people want to know, how did you get into politics, Shimmy? What happened? Uh, It's a great story. Thank you for having me again. You know, I grew up in St. Louis. uh, Very proud of that. As you can see in the background, all my St. Louis Cardinals stuff. Love that, you know, product of Epstein Hebrew Academy and Black Yeshiva High School. You know, it's a big part of who I am. Uh, after growing up in St. Louis, I spent a couple of years in Yeshiva at Har Tzion in, in Gush, um, which is a fantastic, fantastic place. Gave me a lot of what I carry with me uh, into the job in terms of learning and in terms of thinking. Went to YU for about a year and then hopped down to George Washington University where I got my start in politics. Finished my university training there, obviously, but started working on Capitol Hill back then and uh, fell in love with it and never wanted to leave. And so here I find myself a number of years later, still in the mix and uh, loving every minute of it. That's fantastic. So we wanted to get right into it with you because you are someone who you worked for the majority leader, correct? Correct. For those who don't know, there's a speaker and then there's the House majority leader. So you're familiar with these leadership elections that we just went through. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the leadership elections are always, you know, these fascinating inter-party discussions about what policy and what the vision and the future of the party is and the direction the parties want to take the country. And parties have general ideas. You know, there are differences between Democrats and Republicans. And then within the parties, there are different ideas. There are probably a more slight variation about where the ideas want to be, but there are definitely differences of ideas. And so you see that play out. And the speaker is the most unique because to win a majority leader position or a majority whip position, that is something that is uh, within the party. And so you need a majority of the 218. Um, So it's, you know, roughly half of 218 to win that position. But to win speaker, you need a majority of the House, which is, in this case, almost the entire conference, almost the entire Republican Party. And that's what made this election, the speaker, so interesting. You know, majorities tend to be a little bit bigger than they have been in the past few years, both for the Democrats and Republicans, you know, 220s, 230s, sometimes 240s uh, in recent history. But here we see the last Congress with the Democrats in the low 220s and this time with the Republicans in the low 220s, that it really takes almost the entire conference or the caucus for the Democrats in this case to elect the speaker. And, and that's why the drama has played out. Considering the bitter fight and considering how the Republicans only have a four or five seat uh, majority right now, are they going to be an effective leadership? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I think the answer is yes. The slim majorities aren't something that's new to uh, Republicans. Harken back to the early days or my early days on the Hill, I should say, in the late 90s, uh, the majorities were fairly slim as well. It, it was also in the 221, 222, 223 ranges. Um, and they were able to function fairly well as a core. Um, and I think they will find uh, similar functionality in this majority as well. It's always a good thing to have a group of people willing to pull the conference in one direction for a policy purpose if the end goal is to produce a product. The problem becomes when the end goal is not to produce a product. But like we saw ultimately with the speaker race, when a group wants to pull a product in the direction, but ultimately a deal can be done and there's a move towards an end goal, then there's an opportunity to create a product. And I think that this conference will work together. It will be a more conservative product. I think that's what we've learned from the speaker race, that you will have the opportunity to create conservative legislation. I think this conference ultimately will be a fairly productive Congress. Some people think that the radicals took control of the Republican Party, at least in the House, through this whole fight, even though they only have uh, 20 seats. What do you think about that? Um, 
I would question that theory. I, I'm not sure what was agreed to ultimately at the end of the day, at least that we've seen to this point that is so radical. The idea that you can remove the speaker with one member objecting is something that was historically true in the past um, that was changed in recent history. So to revert back to that, it lends itself to be problematic, but it's not necessarily problematic given the overall history that it has been possible in the past. Um, we'll see. We'll see the opportunity. We'll see how they decide to govern. The idea of restoring regular order to Congress, I think, is a good thing. The idea of not creating these massive bills that are four or 5,000 pages where we try to do everything for the last three weeks of the year is not a terribly radical proposal, especially when it comes to government spending. There is a lot of having hearings, restoring regular order, not using the government as a weapon. All these agreements that have come out recently in terms of what these 20 were asking for seem to be things that the Republicans were heading in that direction anyway. We'll see what plays out, but that seems to be what they've asked for. And, and, and so far, I think it's generally the conference is okay with where this is going. I, the rules vote that followed the speaker vote where people had suggested there might be pushback because of the agreements went fairly smoothly with only one Republican objection. So I think the step forward seemed to be in the right direction. Donald Trump seemed to be a constructive power and influencer behind the scenes, uh, especially in this case. Do you think that he restored uh, or reasserted himself as either the leader of the party or certainly uh, uh, overcome some of his issues and some of his problems? Or do you just think that the efforts that he made to uh, sway the radicals, if you want to call them that, uh, is something that was a one-time, one-off situation and it won't have a further impact? I think everybody views uh, the former president for both the positive things that he has done policy-wise during his presidency and, and recognizes some of the detractions that he has. He certainly played a, a role in terms of trying to heal the party. And I think everybody appreciates that he did that in the way that he did that. He was able to certainly talk to some people. Other people seem to not want to hear from him based on the, at least the press reports that we were able to read. Whether that solidifies him as some sort of leader of the party again, I don't know that that's the case. Maybe it's too early to play that out. It certainly was productive in terms of trying to unify the party, and that's great. But I think we're going to have a very open and healthy primary going into 2024. And I'd be hesitant to say that there's any true leader of the party at this point. And I think it'll be a fascinating competition to see where Republicans take this in 2024. Before we pivot in, in terms of the um, going forward, which I know Benyam is going to ask you about, do you see on the Democratic side of things this precedent setting? Because it's funny because I saw a lot of Democratic strategists crowing about how united their base was and how divided the Republican base was. But how do you see that happening if the roles were reversed? Do we really envision the squad, quote unquote, not doing the exact same thing? Why would they not? You know, I wonder the same thing. It's a great question. I don't know that they would. To me, this speaks well of the Republican Party at the end of the day. One, what were we in a hurry to do? This may not have been the right format for the discussion, but at the end of the day, it shows you that there's a diverse opinion amongst the Republican Party, and there should be. The fact that the Republican Party has a big tent of opinion of what policy should be, maybe it's far more diverse than the Democratic Party in terms of public policy. And those discussions need to be had. They need to be fought out. And the fact that it's maybe a little harder to piece together um, means that there's a lot of differential opinion. I would argue that this may not have been the best venue to have that discussion. There may have been better venues to have that discussion. But it's good to know that there's enough of a differential out there and that the party is inclusive enough that we can have people with big differences of opinions in the Republican Party. The fact that the Democrats are proud that they don't have that diversity of opinion in their party is, you know, is them. I think the squad was carefully watching. It'll be interesting to see what they do with it the next time they have an opportunity to do the same thing. At the end of the day, 
the Speaker Pelosi got 216 votes, the same as Speaker McCarthy got 216 votes, you know, in 2020 versus 2022. So I guess the end result was the same. My final question, Shimmy, we introduced the segment by saying that we're going to uh, ask if you have great expectations from the 118th Congress. Do you? And uh, if so, uh, what would they be? I really do. I think there's an there's a opportunity to show a new direction going forward. I've been here for, I don't want to say how many years, but it's been a lot of years since I've been in Washington. And the process has really evolved in how we legislate. My hope is that one of the things that we do is really restore or go back to the way we used to do business in a much more regular order fashion to take things in a much more in-depth policy, thoughtful way, one bill at a time, use the process the way Congress had created it. Um, instead of doing these huge, massive bills at the end of the year, waiting till the last three weeks in December to try and legislate for a year and not do much the rest of the year to really maybe do smaller legislation, more thoughtful legislation, and that allows an opportunity for the bipartisan process to work better as well, because when you're doing more rifle shot bills, when the legislation is more focused, then you don't have to worry about other issues coming in and derailing a bipartisan process. But to really use the committee process, to use the chairman, to use the hearing process, to focus on bits of legislation that can really help the American people, where there is far more agreement at the end of the day between the parties and there is disagreement. And that's the, to me, the biggest tragedy that gets ignored outside of Washington is that, and that people don't see it, that there's far more bipartisan cooperation than most people know. It's not attractive to read about in the press and you don't really see it in the media. They really start to get the town working the way it used to and, and working for the American people again. And so my hope is that by changing these rules and by forcing them to focus maybe on smaller issues that we see the town start to work back the way it used to and really get going back for the American people. Again. I have one final question for you. Yep. What's more likely, uh, Shimmy, the Republicans winning back the White House in 24 or uh, the Cardinals winning the World Series? Well, I am ever the optimist every year that the Cardinals will win the World Series. So uh, I'm not even going to wait for 24. I still think they can win in 23, but... Yeah. Got it. Got it. A optimistic forecast from uh, Shimmy Stein. So we want to thank uh, Shimmy for being on. Shimmy again, founding partner for uh, Westfront Strategies, someone who's been in the community a long time and uh, good shout outs to St. Louis where I was born also. So good shout outs to St. Louis and also um, to our guest for all of his expertise. Thank you very much, Shimmy. Thank you for having me. It's been real have fun. Maury, thanks for bringing Shimmy Stein aboard today. That was uh, an excellent uh, interview. Very informative. My biggest takeaway from it was when he talked about restoring process. I think process really is very important to politics. My feeling is that uh, someone who's, uh, I'm going to use a Israeli term, but someone who's a parliamentarian, someone who really knows how the process works and knows how to push the right buttons and knows how to get things done, can accomplish a lot more than someone who maybe has the greatest ideas and uh, who ends up posturing a lot. So I liked what he said about restoring the process. And I think that if you can restore order and process to deliberations, so the goals might be more modest, the uh, accomplishments might be more modest, but at least you'll get things done. It'll be, uh, and it'll look a lot more positive. My biggest takeaway is the rearview mirror. It appears from someone who's on the inside, who understands the Republican conference and has worked with it. You know, these elections are uh, for speaker and what McCarthy had to deal with are all in the past. And, you know, the feeling that that's a united uh, conference and then they're going to get to work is a big deal. Well, it's a long session. We just got into session. And in fact, I think the week that uh, this is going to air, Congress is already out of session. We have uh, Martin Luther King Day 
and Congress won't be in session the third week in January, but then they'll come back the fourth week in January, and that's when they'll uh, really start getting things going. In the meantime, uh, there's one gentleman who has uh, flown from Israel to America, and he's going to use this little bit of downtime, as far as Congress is concerned, to uh, make an impact and be a person of influence. And his name is Ron Dermer. He was a former uh, Israeli ambassador to the U.S., and now he has a new role in the Netanyahu government. He's the Minister of Strategic Affairs. As I said, he went to America this past week to uh, prepare for an upcoming visit, probably at the end of January, for America's National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. And Dermer is uh, very well-liked and very well-trusted in American circles. He was, of course, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's ambassador for many years. Uh, he's also American himself. Uh, we've done a couple of big features on Ron Dermer in the magazine over the years. Uh, he's from Miami Beach originally, and I lived there for quite a few many years. Dermer's been called Netanyahu's brains. Uh, not that uh, Netanyahu doesn't have his own set of brains, but uh, Dermer is probably one of his most loyal uh, workers. To me, this, uh, this is a good opportunity. You know, there's always opportunities and there's always threats when uh, the U.S. and Israel get together because there's so many areas that we agree on and cooperate and so many areas that uh, we disagree on. And I think what Dermer did this past week is to go to the U.S. and work on those areas of agreement. And I think he's going to smooth out a lot uh, so that the Biden administration can work much better with the new Netanyahu government, again, despite all the differences, especially uh, when it comes to uh, political philosophy. So that's why I name Ron Dermer as my influencer of the week. A name we haven't heard for some time, but just, again, an excellent, excellent uh, pick. Again, also demonstrates how uh, people in politics resurface all the time. They're still there. The relationships are still there. Yes, Ron has uh, kept up very closely with uh, Netanyahu, even in the few years that he didn't have an official position. And uh, he was one of the first persons uh, that Netanyahu called back in. There was some talk about naming Dermer the uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs. That fell by the wayside as there's too many rivals uh, who were looking for that same position. Uh, a lot of people in the Likud uh, resented the idea that, like you said, Dermer was on the outside for a while, and they resented the idea of bringing someone uh, uh, fairly uh, new and uh, fairly from the outside in. But other than that, uh, I think that Netanyahu found the exact right spot for him. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. I always, I always love when um, Benjamin gives us his inside ball on uh, Israel politics. My person of the week is someone who had the opposite of drama, the opposite of a uh, 15 round slugfest to become speaker, which was uh, Hakeem Jeffries, who is from Brooklyn, who is the new minority leader in the uh, House. I think that the reason why he's the person of the week is the absence of that drama is a big deal. He gave a heck of a speech. He's governing in a way which is, I think, going to be very different than already you saw from when Pelosi was doing it. His messaging is about work. His messaging is about results. I went onto his Twitter handle and it literally says, Brooklyn Congressman, results first. And if you've met him or you've heard him speak, you could see that this is someone who wants to get wins on the board and reclaim power for the Democratic Party. So I think he's the person of the week, A, because he avoided that drama that uh, McCarthy had, and B, because he is a new major face for the Democratic Party nationally. And I think people have to pay attention to that. And I think we've discussed this before on a previous podcast, but the fact that he has many Jewish constituents and he's also been to Israel before. So uh, I think that's uh, not only a fresh face, but uh, someone that uh, the Jewish community can uh, get behind and also someone that Israel will be able to uh, work with when it comes to the Democrats. The Democrats are not 
always as friendly to Israel and uh, Israel's positions as the Republicans are. But I think with Jeffries there, so uh, there's at least a, a go-to person that the Israeli government can uh, talk to. I also think it's always great when the local communities take a victory lap. So local Brooklyn communities know him and knew him when he was in city and local politics. And it's now they know the House minority leader. It's a big deal for our community. It's a big accomplishment to develop and store those types of relationships. Maury, last but not least, our fearless forecast. Uh, again, you're one for one. I'm still waiting to see if Biden announces uh, uh, for the presidency. By the time this airs, we'll know if my last fearless forecast worked out or not, because I mentioned a specific date that I thought that he would announce that he's running again. But this week, I'm going to keep it a little bit simpler, and uh, I'm going to tie this into what I said about Ron Dermer's visit to uh, the U.S. Uh, Jake Sullivan's probably coming a week or so later. Jake Sullivan, again, is uh, President Biden's national security advisor. And when Sullivan is here, I think he's going to formally announce in one way or another that the U.S. is not going back to the Iran nuclear deal. Now, what the last for Israel as a concession in return. That I'm not quite so fearless about, but uh, maybe we'll save that for next week and see if uh, this forecast comes true. So my fearless forecast is about, I call it a return to sanity. And my fearless forecast is about George Santos, who we spoke about last week on the podcast, which is, I believe George Santos resigns. I'm not sure when he resigns, but I do believe George Santos resigns. And the reason why I call it return to sanity is because my fearless forecast is it's the beginning of a return to sanity for what elected officials can get away with in terms of busha, in terms of embarrassment, in terms of what is allowed and tolerated. It used to be that if you had a scandal of any sort, if you lied publicly and got caught doing it, if you had a personal scandal or other things. You had to resign. You had to consider resignation. You had to do something. And it just the bar has, is so low now. And I think every day that George Santos stays in office, the bar gets lower and lower. And I believe it's reaching a point uh, where he's going to have to resign. He is being hounded by the press. Every day there's more that's coming out. Multiple people referred him to uh, both ethics investigations and a variety of other things. I don't think this goes away, but I do believe that he has to resign and there's a return to sanity. And I think also in the uh, City and State in New York publication, which you're probably familiar with, a very influential uh, a multimedia outlet, uh, I saw an article just today where they're already talking about the people jockeying for position in case Santos resigns. So uh, uh, Governor Hochul is going to have to uh, call for a special election. And City and State had a whole list of uh, candidates on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans who uh, they expect to uh, step up to the plate and uh, run to try to fill that position if Santos does indeed vacate. And I would go a step further and say, I think the Democrats are going to win that seat back. After this, I certainly agree with you. This is a mess. You are listening to Power Politics, unpacking the power players shaping our world, a Mishpacha podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Leave us a rating and share with your friends. Have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a guest to suggest? We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on Twitter at The Mishpacha or at mishpacha.com forward slash power politics. This episode was produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts with sound design by Cedar Media Studios. See you next week.